This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. For details, visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Rachel Maddow Show, The Young Turks, Counterspin, The David Pakman Show, The Majority Report, Throwing Shade, and The Onion Radio News. And a note for our more sensitive listeners, this episode contains opinions about where a woman's place is that may differ from your own. This is a story that has a math punchline. Ready? All right. No party wants to be on the losing end of a double-digit gender gap heading into an election. That is precisely where Republicans are right now. Since their strategy of advocating furiously against women's health and hoping women don't notice or don't mind was not working to close that gap, Republicans are now trying something new. Uh, They have decided, for example, to take a U-turn from their previous position, and they are deciding now to not block the reauthorization of the Violence Against Women Act, at least not in the Senate. The issue had looked for weeks like it was poised to become a big partisan political battle when it passed out of committee on a party-line vote with zero Republican support. But ultimately, Senate Republicans caved on the Violence Against Women Act. It passed the Senate today on a 68-31 to vote, which included 15 Republicans voting yes. But wait, there's more! The new, now more women-friendly Republican Party is not only no longer blocking the Violence Against Women Act, they are also creating a brand new Republican group just for ladies. A group of House Republicans created a a sort of caucus in 2007 called the Young Guns Program. It was a group designed to support and help elect young, awesome Republicans like themselves. Well, today the Young Guns announced a new program, a Young Guns Program for Republican women called YG Woman Up. It's supposed to be like saying man up, but saying it for woman, woman up. Of the 435 members of the House of Representatives, only 78 are women. That's about 18% of the House. So House Republicans are reaching out with this new Young Guns Woman Up group uh, to a constituency that makes up more than half the general population, but less than 20% of the elected members of the House. Maybe they see this math problem they're in with women and they want to try to fix it. Well, the Young Guns program has a record on supporting women candidates for office. They have a whole list of candidates they're backing this election cycle posted on their website. Here's the math part. So they're supporting 94 Republican candidates this year. They're supporting 14 women. So only about 15% of the candidates the Young Guns are supporting this year are women. That is a lower proportion than the already really low proportion of women who are already serving in the House. They're taking Congress's math problem with women, and they are working to make it worse. Woman up! This is their big outreach effort. Let's have even fewer women in Congress than we've got there now. If this is what it means to woman up, I do not think this is going to help with the gender gap problem. I just don't. A thousand thundering thrills await me. Facing insurmountable odds Gratefully The female of the species Is more deadly than the male Shock, shock, horror, horror Shock, shock, horror I'll shout myself hoarse For your supernatural force The female of the species Is more deadly than the male
Governor Rick Scott of Florida has decided to veto uh, $1.5 million that would go to rape crisis centers. His spokesperson said that the reason why he decided to veto it is because, well, these uh, rape crisis centers already get over $6 million in funding anyway, and they don't need this additional $1.5 million. Except they failed to note that the $6 million really goes toward education to prevent rape. But none, not much of it really goes toward helping women who have been raped. So as a result, you know, we've done stories about rape kits before where women will get raped, they'll do the rape kit, right? So they have all of this DNA evidence, and then it just sits there because no one is, there aren't enough people who will analyze each case, right? There needs to be it additional funding money. for that. Exactly. It's, very, it's a very simple situation. And this is one thing I know at least from it. They throw on the numbers, they go $1.5 million more. We can't afford that in Florida, the state of this economy. This is ridiculous. So when it comes to helping citizens, actual citizens in rape cases, we hear the word, the term million, and we're like, oh my God, that's a lot of money. This but is it's over really state. not. And we're already pushing $6.5 million. But when we hear billions coming for things like bankers, and we hear trillions talking about wars, we go, well, that's just what, we've been conditioned to be okay with T's and B's when it comes to these amounts of money, when it comes to these big uh, endeavors that we go into. But when it comes to millions just for citizens, that's nothing. 1.5 million is nothing. Yeah, so, keep in mind, like, oh, real quick, okay. Steve, all of us, you know, the majority of us pay our taxes, right? And what always gets on my nerves is knowing that my tax dollars never go toward, or very little of it goes toward education and helping people in my community. The majority of it goes to defense, it goes to these wars that are unjustified. If someone told me, hey, we're going to tax you at a higher rate, but your money is going to go toward helping rape victims, bettering education, public education, helping these students have better accessibility to higher education, whatever it is, right? I'm all for it. But knowing that so much of your money, whether it's state taxes or federal taxes, go toward, goes towards BS, it drives me crazy. Yeah. Well, um, you know, this kind of goes to your philosophy on the role of government. Mm -hmm. Like these rape crisis centers, what they do is they, you know, they counsel women who are rape victims. And right now, because of the lack of funding, there's a six-week, you know, eight-week wait. I mean, you should probably get the counseling right after the rape rather than waiting months and months. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, but a very reasonable conservative argument would be, well, look, that's very sad. I feel bad for these women. However, it is not the role of the government to create these crisis centers and fund them and help these women. They have to find help some other way. Um, now, that argument to me is, I mean, I, I disagree with it, but that's, that's a fine argument. I'm okay with that argument. If that person also said that we, it's not the role of the government to give out corporate subsidies mm -hmm. and, and to you know, give away uh, million, or billions of dollars to defense contractors and you know, cut sweetheart deals with their, with their cronies. Um, but that's not what's happening. What kind of society do you guys want to have, people in Florida? Do you want a society where we don't have rape crisis centers, and we save the million, $1.5 million for, I don't, I don't know, tax cuts for, for the rich people, or to spend a little bit more money in defense, whatever else it may be, I don't know what that money will be used for. But uh, these are choices that we make, and when you, when you choose someone like Rick Scott, that's the choice that you made.
finally, here's Diane Sawyer on ABC World News, June 21st. And now to the ongoing master class in letting your hair down by Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. These past few months, we've been watching her swig a beer, brandish a scrunchie without apology and makeup free and telling everybody she doesn't care what they think. And today, donning wing-tipped purple glasses at the swearing-in of a new assistant secretary <laughs> whose favorite color just happens to be purple. Proof that nobody does unplugged, quite like the Secretary of State, who is is leaving office by the end of the year. Media always tell us there aren't more women in the news because news can't help but reflect the power imbalances of society. But that doesn't really account for media's approach, shall we say, to those women who do occupy positions of power. But sadly, a news story about the Secretary of State's scrunchie probably says less about gender bias than about media priorities overall. Something to remember the next time someone in the press complains that they just don't have enough time in one newscast to do all the stories they'd like to. I hope you enjoyed this show, but also consider it a valuable tool for not only aggregating, but more importantly, amplifying our view of progressive politics in the world. So if that's true, I ask you to support this work by becoming a member of the show at whatever level you're able, as anything from a basic leftist up through the ranks of socialist, communist, Satanist, or even the most reviled level of support, George Soros. I produce 11 episodes a month of fearless coverage on all the hot-button issues we face, maintaining a rock-solid schedule. So if that sounds worth supporting, please consider signing up to donate as little as 5 a month or even $55 a year. Members also gain access to bonus audio and video content that doesn't make it into the show itself. So for a concrete way to support a strong progressive voice, please visit the membership tab at bestoftheleft.com. Rush Limbaugh says, actually, you have Rush Limbaugh on your shirt today, Lewis. I do, as, as one of the three stooges. Rush Limbaugh says that when women got the right to vote is when it all went downhill. Then later on, he claims he's joking, but it's like way too late. Let's take a listen to some of this audio. The 18th Amendment. And I thought that... To set the stage, there's a caller talking here, and then Rush Limbaugh decides to add on. Sixth Amendment, which gave us the right to vote for 18-year-olds, if we're going to look back on this in 10 or 15 years and think, this is where the problem started, we would not have, I mean, the dynamic was set up to have somebody that was this foolish get elected. Nah, I can, get, I can do one better than that. Well, you know what? They, they, when they, women you know, got the right to vote, when it all went downhill. <laughs> because that's, that's when votes started being cast with emotion and uh, uh, maternal instincts that government ought to uh, reflect. Well, you know, before 21, the 18-year-olds, they only know, uh, they're only financial. The, the caller is almost stunned. He doesn't even know how to respond. There's like a two-second blank space there. Yeah. The, call, the caller actually might have some, some serious uh, information and some serious talking <laughs> points to go over, and Romney just drops this ridiculous bomb. The, the caller who presumably... Limbaugh, you mean. Limbaugh, right, is, is presumably a listener and, uh, and is just shocked. I mean, but he says things like this all the time. The thing is, right, what, what evidence do we have to suggest that this isn't really what Limbaugh thinks when he says it's a joke? I mean, it, there's, of course, nothing in Rush Limbaugh's history that would suggest he's misogynistic. 
Oh, wait a second. What about that thing where he called that woman a slut a couple months ago? Hmm. Was that misogynistic? <laughs> Why well, stop there, though? The real problems began when black people weren't even considered real people. That's when all, when all, all the problems began when we recognized black people as one whole person, Lewis. Let's go even further. So what was the apology like? It was just that it was a joke. Hmm. All right. But it doesn't sound like a joke. There's nothing jokey about it. And he's actually making a case. He's saying he's making actually a really specific case that a lot of these Republicans make, which is women vote with emotion, men vote with logic, and then women vote with maternal instincts where the country should be taking care of people, whereas, of course, men never do stuff like that. And this is just the gender divide when it comes to voting. So by this logic, men are Republicans and women are Democrats? Yeah, well, you know what, actually... It men, is, men are conservative, women are socialists? It is true that women uh, tend to vote Democratic slightly more than, than white men do, but, you know, who doesn't compared to that white men voting group? Uh, right. group. Save some place. You know you've only got one Change your ways While you're young about to listen to is Rush Limbaugh's inner demons, his inner misogyny coming out despite the fact that he lost hundreds of thousands of dollars of advertising, despite the fact that he got kicked off a bunch of affiliates because of his blatant misogyny. It cannot help itself but to creep out of his massive shell. And then what you're going to now, see, and just hear if you see how he stops himself in mid-sentence, as he's getting an IM probably from his producer who says, whoa, 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 you got to back off on this. And then you'll hear how he tries to salvage it at the end. But here is rampant misogynist Rush Limbaugh who cannot help himself. Marina, thanks much. Carl in uh, in Lee, uh, uh, never heard of this. Where somewhere in California? How are you, sir? Oh, fine, sir. Uh, that's Leona Valley. Leona? Yes. Okay, so that's not spelled that way. Okay. Uh, you know, my thought is uh, going back to the problem of Obamacare and going back to the problem of how Obama got into the White House. I was looking at the Constitution the other day, thinking about when we repealed the Eighteenth Amendment. And I thought the 26th Amendment, which gave us the right to vote for 18-year-olds, if we're going to look back on this in 10 or 15 years and think, this is where the problem started, we would not have, I mean, the dynamic was set up to have somebody that was this foolish get elected. Nah, I can, because, I can do one better than that. Well, you know what? They've, they've when women people, got the right to vote, when it all went downhill. Because that's, that's when votes started being cast with emotion and uh, uh, maternal instincts that government ought to uh, reflect. Well, you know, before 21... Okay, stop for a second. 
Did that sound like a joke to you? No, I could do one better. Uh, the electorate really got bad when we gave women the vote. And that's when uh, they started to, um, they voted with emotion. And when government became maternal. Try and see if you can see the, 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 the comedic construct there. No, I don't think you can. But, however, he stops. He gets that I am. He lets the caller speak. Eighteen-year-olds, they only know, uh, their only financial knowledge is, hey, I need money, I'll ask mom for it. And with the state of education these days, I'm not sure there's that much history or government to Yeah, I, look, I'm joking about the women's vote. I'm just a little frustrated here. But look, the, the young people don't vote enough. That's, I appreciate what you're saying. I don't think it's quite applicable yet. Beep, beep. Backing it up. That is the sound of a misogynist who realizes, oops, I can't go there for another six to eight months. And, I mean, just to understand what he's saying here, let's assume for the moment, let's give uh, Rush Limbaugh, uh, for the sake of argument, which I don't think it's true, but for the sake of argument, that women are more emotional and more maternal and have a maternal perspective on things and a more emotional perspective why wouldn't we allow for the attributes of fifty percent of our population to in any way implicate society hmm? The guy hates women. He cannot help himself. And he's also apparently a really bad joke teller. The caller is a pretty big asshole, too. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Blaming 18-year-olds. How dare they have a say in whether they go off to war or You just die in war, douchebag. You don't get to vote. You don't know your finances yet. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. And just because your experience was when you were 18, mommy and daddy were there to give you money, doesn't mean everybody's experience is the same. Dick. Hi, I'm Sam Cedar. You may know me from my shows on Air America Radio, from filling in for Keith Olbermann on Countdown, or even, God forbid, my directing shows like Comedy Central's I'm With Busey. If not, you should really get to know me. Not personally, of course. I think we'd both find that uncomfortable. But if you're a fan of the best of the left like me, I think you'll enjoy my daily live show and podcast, The Majority Report, at Majority.fm. It's a daily dose of political news, analysis, and guests like Chris Hayes, Robert Reich, Digby, comedians like Mark Marin, Janine Garofalo, filmmakers like Morgan Spurlock and Lucy Walker, and on occasion, between my rants on raising taxes, ending wars, and decorporatizing our democracy, I can be mildly amusing. I'm unbought and unbossed daily on the Majority Report at Majority.fm. Ed Klein uh, wrote a book about the Obama administration. He's the New York Times Magazine editor-in-chief. 
and I smell something fishy in this guy right off the bat. Now he had some Reverend Wright um, revelations. Reverend Wright claims that he was uh, offered a, basically $150,000 not to talk anymore by the Obama administration or the Obama campaign in 2008. There's something a little off about that, but they have Reverend Wright on tape talking about it. I don't know that I would have trusted Reverend Wright's version of that story, but I probably would have ran it too. So, okay, but then he had some talk about how Bill Clinton was insulting, uh, significantly insulting President Obama behind the scenes. Mm -hmm. And I was like, it doesn't ring right. You know, I, I'm no one to protect Obama. God knows that. And if I thought that it made sense, I'd run with it in a second, right? Mm -hmm. Like, there's something off with this guy. Well, He's basically confirmed it in a, in a strange way, to, for me at least. He went on Kill Me and Friends here, and he's going to talk about Hillary Clinton and her chances in 2016. And listen to what he says. At this very moment that we're speaking right now, Brian, they are already thinking seriously about running in 2016. She'll be 69, won't she? She'll be 69 years old. And as you know, and I don't want to sound um, anti-feminist here, but she does, she's not looking good these days. She's looking overweight and she's looking very tired. It looks and like she's not trying, to be honest. Yes, it does look that way. I think she's going to take some time off, get back into shape, and if her health holds out, and that's a big if, of course, if her health holds out, there's no question in my mind, she and Bill, two for the price of one, will run in 2016. Look, I hate that for two different reasons. One, come on, keep it real, he, he just called... Uh, Hillary Clinton fat and old, okay? Uh, and he says, well, I don't want to sound anti-feminist. What? <laughs> Too late. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then number two, it's like the insider BS in Washington. Like, oh, I know, you're going to gonna run two for one, and you're doing this, and you're doing that. And they, everybody's got different conspiracy theories about how po politics works, and it's just nonsense. Oh, but like, if she's getting into shape, that means she's going to run. If she doesn't get into shape, that means she's not going to run. Oh, shut up already. Right? And look, on the anti-feminist thing, I'm a little torn because on Huckabee, they called him fat and they said that might be one of the reasons he's not going to run. That turned out to be somewhat true, mm -hmm. right? So is it fair to say Hillary Clinton is fat and then that's an issue? Anna, go. Hillary Clinton is, her weight is not something that stood out to me, right? And, and look, men get it too in politics, so I don't want to pretend like this is just something that women deal with in politics. But to be honest with you, there's much more of an emphasis on the way she looks than whether or not she would be an effective president, right? And I, that's the part of it that really bothers me. Like, Chris Christie gets a lot of crap about his weight, but people also focus on his policy ideas, what they like about it, what they don't like about it. His weight is just something that people poke fun at him for. But I feel like with Hillary Clinton, there's been a lot of emphasis on the fact that she's a woman and the fact uh, and what she looks like, and I don't like that. Right, well, look, that's what my problem with Ed Klein is, right? He's going with all the insider BS. like. It's not like, should she run because of substantive policy things? It's not that nobody talks about Hillary Clinton's substance. A lot of people do. She's Secretary of State. There's a lot of discussion about you know, her views on back in the day in Libya, now Syria, et cetera, et cetera. It's just this Washington pundit crowd, like Ed Klein, are like, oh, yeah, okay, well, if she's going to run in 2016 based nothing on policy, but whether she's fat or not fat. And you're right, they do it to Chris Christie. As I said, they do it to Huckabee. They did it, let's they be fair. They love this BS because they don't they hate talking about policy because if they talked about policy, they'd have to actually tell the American people what's going on. Instead, they focus on these trivialities and this nonsense. To be fair, John McCain, when he was running for president, was 73, 72, 73, and he got a lot of criticism for that as well. Uh, people were saying that's a little too old to run for president. It's not a good idea, especially 
especially when your running mate is a moron. Um, so <laughs> I, think, but I think that was the key part. Yeah, definitely. So I, I, I can understand people being concerned about someone's age when it comes to running for president. But Hillary Clinton has been criticized way too much because of the fact that she's a woman. She can't win, right? Remember when she was uh, running for president, if she, did, if she was too strong or aggressive on something, she's shrill. Like she's she's a bitch, right? Like people people don't like her. She's not a likable person. But then if she's too soft, oh, she's just a soft woman. She can't lead a nation. She can't win. She can't win. That's the part of it that's frustrating. You can't win. You can't make even. Man. You can't get out of the game. People get saying things are gonna change. They look just like a stage in the same. You get in. Joining us now is Dr. Heidi Hartman. She's founder and president of the Washington-based Institute for Women's Policy Research. Dr. Hartman's also a research professor at George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Hartman, thank you very much for being here. I really appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. It's a pleasure. Thank you. I know that you, um, uh, at the Women's Pol Institute for Women's Policy Research, you have done some of the uh, most important and most highly publicized work on this issue. Is there any way that the idea of a gender-based pay disparity is something that depends on how you look at it? Is this something other than a blunt truth about the American economy? Well, I mean, you obviously have by far the better part of the argument. You've got the Census Bureau, and I might mention the Bureau of Labor Statistics agreeing with you. Oh, and also I could mention the U.S. General Accountability Office. I think what the issue is for the Republicans is that they believe that that's not, no matter how big the wage gap is, almost none of it is due to discrimination. And, of course, these, these, these numbers from BLS and Census Bureau are not really talking about discrimination. But the GAO study that I just mentioned did, and they said that even when you put everything you possibly can think of in the regression equations, the statistical analyses to try to make that gap go away, you still can't explain at least 20% of it. Now, most other studies place the part you can't explain as a quarter to a half. So a large part of the gap probably is due to discrimination. But that seems to be what the debate is. And, you know, when you ask, uh, can the Republicans convince women that they don't live in the real world? Probably not, because almost every survey that's ever been done of working women, when you ask them about their job, like 95% say, my biggest problem on the job is a lack of equal pay. In terms of just making it very clear, what you were talking about there about the doing a statistical regression analysis on these, analysis on these things, controlling for other factors, I, I spent a long time going through the sort of Republican side of this argument today just trying to understand how you could look at these very blunt numbers and come up with the opposite truth. What you're saying basically is that when you control for things like the number of hours worked, you're still getting a gender-based pay disparity that is not explained by working a different number of hours. Right, exactly. I mean, Alex seemed to believe that if you put in working a different number of hours, that would explain it. No, far from it. If you look at all workers, and all male and female in the economy, and we know that, let's say, during the childbearing years, about a third of women may be working part-time. So count 
part-time. Count how much women work. Okay, I'm working part-time. I'm only making 400 a week. And compare it to all the men, more of whom are working full-time. You still get a, pay, a wage ratio of 72%. So that means that that 77% isn't going to move very much if you suddenly remove the people who, where the men are working 44 and the women are only making 40. Yeah, no, number of hours explains a very small part of it. I mean, these regression analyses, they include occupation, they include your education, number of years of experience, maybe sometimes marital status, number of children, blah, 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 just about anything you can think of, and you cannot make the whole gap go away. So there is discrimination. Now, those studies aren't even, in a way, counting the sex segregation that you opened your presentation with this evening. Um, those studies try to hold occupation constant. And you had all the data up there, uh, occupation by occupation. We have some equal occupations. You mentioned police officers and sheriffs. Women are only like 1% behind there. Amazing. Uh, but you go to financial managers, they're 26% behind. Hmm. So it is different within each occupation. But maybe why women don't go into police as much and go into uh, nursing more is also discrimination. So even the exercise of trying to decide, you know, how much of the wage gap is due to discrimination and how much isn't, is that's open to interpretation. That's why in Canada, for example, when they talk about the wage gap between women and men, they would use a number comparable to that 72% figure I gave you. They would use a number that says, well, look, just look at how much difference men and women earn in the labor market. I mean, if we believe men and women are equally competent, equally capable, also have to live and eat and support their families, we should be wanting a society where that gap is zero, where a man and a woman are making the same amount. And then how, how to get to zero seems like where, that's where I thought we were on policy. Everybody agreed that there's a gap. We're trying to get it to zero. Let's fight about how we get there in, with all of our ideological biases and all the different places we come from. Instead, to be denying that the gap is there um, has blown my mind. Uh, Dr. Heidi Hartman, founder and president of the Institute for Women's Policy Research, thank you very much for joining us and helping us uh, understand this. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. We have plowed and we have planted, we have gathered into barns, done the same work as the men with babies in our arms. But you won't find our stories in most history books you read. We were there, we're still here, fighting for the things we need. We were there in the factories, we were there in the mills, we were there in the mines and came home to fix the we were there on the picket lines We raised our voices loud It makes me proud Just knowing we were there I was going to tell you about um, Donatella Versace How she told Telegraph UK that Well, the interviewer said That Mucha Prada recently told me Dejectedly that feminism was dead in Italy Does Donatella agree? She says, quote, feminism is dead in the world. I love it. It comes from another time. I'm a feminist. I want to fight, but I don't see many people with this desire to fight for something. Women don't help each other, especially in fashion. Good for her. I but, mean, OK, here's my point, though. I just this is a good jumping off point. Is feminism dead? Yeah. You think so? Oh, oh no! I, I was just agreeing with your question. Is feminism? You're agreeing with my question, so yes, so you're yeah. saying yes, well, yeah. or you're agreeing with the I, the fact that I said a question. I just think maybe feminism has changed a lot because it used to be, you know, you used to think of it as 
a bad word. I wonder, do people still think of it as a bad word? I think so. I think when you say, when I tell people I'm a feminist or I do feminist comedy, which I don't really even like to say, but um, they get kind of weirded out. And then I have to like demilitarize my, <laughs> I have to soften the blow or something. But there's, here's the thing. I, 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 I think I was probably, I was a very angry feminist. And then uh, my friend Marissa, she said something really brilliant to me one day. She was like, you know, being a feminist means that if a girl wants to be a cheerleader, you support her. How is Marissa Tomei? Oh, Marissa Tomei. She's fine. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't know. I knew you guys had a falling out, but well, I, that, you know those why? are supportive words. Do you know why? No. So she, here's the thing. I'm a lot bigger than her. She's, right. she's a size. She's a size zero in pants and a size two in tops. Oh, I see. She's a little bigger on the top. And she always wants me to borrow her clothes. Mm-hmm. But she I wants ke- you to borrow her clothes. Yes, always. What a weird thing. She's always like, Aaron, I want you to wear this fabulous, uh, whatever. And I'm like, I can't fit into it. And then this is our fucked up relationship. I can't fit into it. Then so I'll put the dress on and I'll rip it, and then she'll get mad at me. I see. Huh. And it happens every time, and I can't talk her out of it. Now, other than that, I love brunching with her. Yeah, okay. I wonder, though, if, like, fem- feminism has certainly changed, because even when you look at, especially in the 90s, like, TV shows like Ally McBeal and Sex in the City, like, those, I guess, they were, like, feminist shows, but it, it made feminism look very different. What? T- t- tell me a successful woman who's on TV right now in a, in a sitcom. Well, the sex, sex, like, a successful character, a successful actress? character i don't know like i mean like girls wasn't a big success um those girls aren't i'm saying those they're not successful on that show no oh, name, I see name what you a woman mean. in a but like, there's no mary tyler moore no right yeah you're right i mean yeah because even fey? veep wasn't really like that yeah i guess i guess tina fey but she's still even kind of bumbling well yeah. i guess it was like murphy brown and stuff but yeah but there's no one who's like a take control woman at work who is who kind of has like a kooky a home life. Uh, yeah, it's true. And there's not very many single women on television, maybe. I don't know. I feel like we're going to get flooded with emails of like... No, it's so it's Tina Fey. Right. Who's married in real life. Yeah. Then um, I guess... Les- well, Amy Poehler's oh, Amy character, Leslie, right? Yeah, although I think she is... I don't know. She has relationships. She has relationships, but she's single. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I think I don't know that feminism is dead. I mean, once again, we already had bridesmaids. That's why I wish everyone would shut up because I remember when bridesmaids came out and all I can remember thinking was this better be success because otherwise women are never going to be in movies again. And I was really, really interested to see what would happen. And then I saw that movie. And Bridesmaids, as far as I'm concerned, solved every problem in the workplace, solved every problem at home, solved every uh, problem in you know with South American women who are uh, getting AIDS without any help. I, I don't know. I think I think that probably that movie solved a lot of stuff. It definitely closed the gap in wages, and uh, it definitely you know um boosted the ratings for mike and molly which is all we really wanted so yeah i would say the answer to your question is yes did did bridesmaids do everything for the feminist movement yes i didn't ask that question oh oh i didn't ask that question i don't know why you always i don't know how you can even justify that logic oh. that bridesmaids has solved everything oh well a it's not logic okay and well B, that answers justify everything. my love by madonna so is a song that Madonna sang. Yeah. Needing, waiting for you to justify my love.
As an anti-consumerism advocate, I'd like to encourage you to shop less, don't buy things you don't need, and only buy the necessities from local, independently owned businesses. That said, if you don't take this good advice, then at least there's a way to shop that helps support this show at the same time. Simply click through to Amazon.com, just one of the major companies under constant boycott by one liberal cause or another, from the banner posted at bestoftheleft.com. Better yet, click through just once and bookmark that link to use every time you shop. Your shopping experience will be identical to normal. It will cost you nothing extra, but 7 to 8% of the cost of your order in soulless corporate blood money will be siphoned off and used to tremendously support the production of this show. Thanks for doing the right thing, whatever you consider that to be. South Carolina's uh, Republican Governor Nikki Haley has vetoed abuse and rape prevention funding. This is brilliant. She says it's a, it's a distraction. It's a distraction. Nearly half a million dollars, we're talking about only half a million dollars, by the way, was slated to go towards domestic violence and sexual assault prevention And Nikki Haley defending the veto, saying that rape and sexual assault prevention programs only, quote, distract from the Department of Health's mission and that sexual assault victims are, quote, only a small portion of South Carolinians who need help. And that's why there's only a small portion of that money going to it. It's amazing that any women vote for Nikki Haley. It's, it's really amazing. I'm dumbfounded by it. If they it. do, it's because they have no clue what Nikki Haley's doing. Sexual assault and domestic violence victims already feel completely alone in the world. That's one of the main reasons why so many of them don't come forward, Lewis. And now, the consolation from Nikki Haley is, listen, it's only a small portion of people. That's the exact wrong thing to be saying, because that makes the people who are victims feel particularly marginalized. Listen, what happened to you is so rare that the governor is vetoing funding even related to preventing this type of thing, because it's a distraction. It's only a small percentage of people. That's really going to make victims of abuse and domestic violence more likely to come forward, isn't it, Lewis? Right. Unbelievable. It's, it's, it really is amazing that any women vote for her. And by the way, not to mention the fact that South Carolina ranks seventh in the country for number of women killed by men and has had a rate of sexual violence higher than the national average, not for 10 years, not for 20 years, but for 30 years, since 1982, always higher than average rates of sexual violence in South Carolina. Maybe being distracted by trying to help abuse and rape victims would be a good thing. It might take attention away from destructive social policy that we're seeing in places like South Carolina from Republican governors like Ms. Nikki Haley. It, it never ends with South Carolina. Almost every week we've got some incredibly disturbing story uh, involving South Carolina. It's unbelievable. In my mind I'm gone to Carolina Can't you see the sunshine Let's go to Pat Buchanan talking about when we will possibly have a female president in the U.S. 2040 or 2050? That late? Let's hope so. 
Okay, I, I love the McLaughlin report, mm -hmm. uh, and I think politically there's a lot I don't agree with John McLaughlin on, but I grew mm -hmm. up on it. I think it's hilarious. I think it's a fun show. If you care about politics, it's ex it's exciting, right? For those of us who care a lot about politics, and so. I grew up with Buchanan in a sense. I've interviewed him, interviewed him a million times, not just on the Young Turks, but also on MSNBC. So, having said all that, the guy is inescapably sexist, let alone the racial racist. Racist, right? Okay. So, he wrote a whole book about how, I mean, he, there was a portion in one of his books where he talked about it wasn't, World War II wasn't Hitler's fault. We made him do it. Okay. <laughs> Come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on, come on. The guy's totally unacceptable, right? And now here he is saying, hey, you know what? Yeah, if we're lucky, we get to delay a woman president until 2040, 2050. Like, he's kind of kidding and mainly being not kidding. Being serious, yeah, exactly. Like, he says it in a joking way, but you know he's being serious about it. Yeah. So it's time to retire Pat Buchanan. Like, How old is Pat Buchanan? Like, 98. <laughs> he's really old. He's not that old. But he's, I feel like he's. Well, not I feel. As long as I have been sanctioned, Pat Buchanan has been on television. Wow. Okay. So, enough. Enough is enough. Like Pat uh, once told me on a show that we did, I said, look, you did the Southern Strategy. He was part of the team that came up with it for Nixon, right? And now the demographics have shifted. Now with the addition of Latinos, it looks like the Southern Strategy is going to come back to bite you in the ass. And how do you feel about that? How do you fight back? Here's what he said. We had a good run. <laughs> okay. He, and that's basically an admission. We went for the racist vote, and it worked for 40 years, right? And now we're at the end of our run. Pat, you're at the end of your run. You're right. Time to step aside, okay? The old world where your sexism and racism, et cetera, were celebrated, hopefully is transitioning out ever so goddamn slowly, right? So you need to move along with that. Find a porch somewhere, grab some lemonade, and enjoy America. And do your show and your grants to your wife and your neighbors who will love it. Well, your wife will probably hate it. But have your neighbors come by and be like, ah, you know how much I hate women and the colored folks. Ah, poor Hitler. <laughs> okay, there's going to be people who are going to enjoy that. Do it on your porch. Happy with no teeth. Happy here in hibernation Slurping on a peach Staring at the situation Key at my foot Meowing out a conversation Rocking back and forth That's my only destination Old man on the back porch Old man on the back porch Old man on the back porch And that old man is me Fourteen feelings are hurt in a local teasing incident. It's the Onion Radio News. This is Doyle Redland reporting. 
An estimated 14 feelings were hurt and three pride seriously wounded today when a group of preteen girls were teased by a larger, more popular group of girls. Spectators near the scene reported words like skank and loser were fired at the girls, leaving the victims devastated. Some people say they heard girls chanting, you ugly, uh, uh, you ugly, but we cannot confirm those rumors at this time. Emergency Emotional Services Technician Liz Brownstein. The victims were rushed to the crying ward at a local hospital where doctors say they remain in extremely criticized condition. Royal Redland for the Onion Radio News online. And just let her cry. If the tears fall down Upon entering the apartment, Tommy's ears met a loud, pulsating noise that seemed to resemble music. What's that you got on the stereo, Ash? Hootie and the Blowfish. Whatty and the Whofish? Tommy rolled his eyes. They're really good, Ash. Tommy brought sarcasm to new heights. As you know, in uh, Mississippi, the Mississippi legislative uh, house essentially had passed a bill signed by Republican Governor Phil Bryant who has rep- repeatedly say he wants Mississippi the state to be abortion free and the law that was passed requires anyone performing abortions at the state's one and only clinic there is only one abortion clinic in all of Mississippi to provide family planning services uh, to women, be an OBGYN with privileges to admit patients at a local hospital. Of course, these privileges are difficult uh, to obtain, and, and you know, we're not talking about in the context of emergency. It is an uh, OBGYN that has a, uh, 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 an uh, ongoing relationship with the hospital. The problem is, of course, in Mississippi, that the one clinic that's available... Uh, has two physicians who do abortions there. They are OBGYNs, but of course they travel from out of state because the environment there is so hostile to a woman's right to choose. And this law was set to go into effect. The Jackson's Women's Health Organization filed a lawsuit with the help of the Center for Reproductive Rights, which is based in New York, And a judge, Daniel P. Jordan, U.S. District Judge, issued a temporary restraining order on the day the uh, new law took effect, which I believe was today or uh, Friday. In the order, Jordan wrote, plaintiffs have offered evidence, including quotes from significant legislative and executive officers, that the act's purpose is to eliminate abortions in Mississippi. They likewise submitted evidence that no safety or health concerns motivated its passage. And the evidence has yet to be rebutted. In other words, you can't pass a law with the purpose of denying women a right that has been extended to them by the Constitution, as interpreted by the Supreme Court. Now, of course, who knows uh, what uh, what the court will do in the coming months or years uh, to this right of women to have some type of autonomy over their own body. But um, 
for the time being, anyways, a U.S. district ju- judge in Mississippi has essentially enjoined that law from taking place, and we'll see uh, what happens in the future. Since the 2010 elections in which Republicans did so well, particularly in the states, America's Republican Party has been laser focused on jobs, 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 by which I mean abortion. In the Republican-controlled House of Representatives in Washington, the third bill, the third bill that Republicans introduced upon gaining control of the House was an anti-abortion bill. See, it's H.H.R. 3. They do them in numerical order. Uh, Then the line in the sand over which Republicans threatened to shut down the whole federal government was their effort to defund Planned Parenthood. Uh, Now in the second year of their majority in the House, congressional Republicans are still working on anti-abortion legislation all the time. They are fighting right now to restrict abortion rights in Washington, D.C., since Congress has some control over the district's affairs. That has led D.C. residents to stop by one Republican congressman's office last month uh, with a long list of other more pressing issues he might take on if he cares so much about D.C., things like potholes and vermin infestations and parking tickets and so on. In the Republicans' presidential primary this year, that abortion above all else climate has led to a race in which not only all, led to a race in which not only did all the leading candidates say they would overturn Roe versus Wade to make having an abortion a criminal act, but beyond that, all of the leading candidates for president on the Republican side this year said they supported personhood for fertilized eggs. It's a legal idea designed by the right to outlaw the most common forms of contraception used in the United States while also outlawing all abortions. That was at the federal level. At the state level, it has been an anti-abortion free-for-all since the 2010 elections, with more anti-abortion legislation being introduced and more being passed than at any time since it became a legally constitution, a legal constitutionally protected right to get an abortion in this country in the early 1970s. So after that laser-like focus on jobs, 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 by which I mean abortion, it seems like now, maybe, in this current news cycle, maybe, the pendulum is swinging back in the other direction. Or at least people who are on the other side of the issue from Republicans are starting to make some real noise about how far Republicans have swung the pendulum since the 2010 elections. Today in Michigan, for example, Republicans got a performance that they did not ask for, but they definitely did earn. As you may have heard, particularly on this show, last week, state Republicans banned two Democratic lawmakers, both women, uh, from speaking on the floor of the Michigan House. It was the first time in anyone's memory that lawmakers had been censored like that. It began during a debate on a new omnibus Republican anti-abortion bill that expands the state's right to regulate abortion clinics out of existence. 
I mean, not accidentally, intentionally, intentionally onerous regulations designed to shut down abortion providers. The measure passed in Michigan mostly along party lines, but during debate on the bill, female Democratic legislators argued against it vigorously. And one legislator used a word that got her sent to the penalty box by the Republicans in charge. I have not asked you to adopt and adhere to my religious beliefs. Why are you asking me to adopt yours? And finally, Mr. Speaker, I'm flattered that you're all so interested in my vagina, but no means no. For that comment, and a few others from Democrats that day, the Republican majority floor leader in Michigan banned State Representative Lisa Brown and another woman Democratic legislator from speaking. That was last week. Fast forward to today, and this was the rather incredible scene outside the Michigan Capitol. Uh, playwright and activist Eve Ensler there to perform her most famous work, The Vagina Monologues. The state legislator whose comment caused all the hullabaloo in the headlines, she and nine other legislators starred in the play. They used the word that must not be named more than a hundred times. So that's Michigan. In Virginia last week, home of Governor Ultrasound, the state's Board of Health there did something shocking. The state Board of Health in Virginia last week decided not to make it more difficult for abortion providers to operate in Virginia. Well, Virginia Republicans had wanted to do the same kind of thing they're trying to do in Michigan. They had wanted to pass intentionally onerous regulations, specifically targeting abortion providers to put them out of business. But the state Board of Health unexpectedly voted to block the Republicans' move. The state Board of Health voted to exempt existing abortion providers from the new rules that seem specifically driven to shut them all down. The board made this vote against the advice of Virginia's radically anti-abortion Republican Attorney General. The decision now goes to Governor Bob McDonnell for review. So that's going on in Virginia. In Florida, over the weekend, 1,200 mayors from all over the country gathered for the 80th annual Conference of Mayors. At the end of the three-day conference, the mayors issued a list of adopted resolutions that they all voted on, things like anti-violence programs and drug treatment and education. Also on the subject of reproductive rights, the mayor's resolution recognized 10 different ways in which women's health care was being restricted and women's rights were being impinged across the country. The resolution affirmed the importance of women's reproductive rights, and it called for Congress and the states to improve women's access to safe and comprehensive reproductive health care. So that's the nation's mayors. But wait, there's more. Today, a group of Catholic nuns launched a bus tour of nine states from Iowa to Virginia. They're calling it Nuns on the Bus. Nuns drive for faith, family, and fairness. After the Vatican said in April that nuns in America are spending way too much time on social justice issues and caring for the poor when they really ought to be focused on being good anti-abortion activists, the nuns decided no. The nuns decided instead to travel around in their bus now, talking about other things. Uh, they're now, for this week, for example, talking about how much the Republican Paul Ryan budget that Mitt Romney says he would adopt as president would hurt the poor and the sick and the people who nuns can't help but be nice to and be concerned about even when the church tells them to focus on other things. So whether or not all these developments mean that the pendulum really is swinging back or people are at least getting mad about how far the pendulum has swung. I have one thing to say here personally, not as a TV show host here, but just as a person who happens to be related to some nuns. Don't mess with nuns. This is not a warning, it's not advice, it's not a threat. 
It is a fact that I have learned from personal experience. Ask anybody in my family. If you mess with nuns, you will lose. Every time, you will always regret messing with nuns. Jay, hi, it's John in New York. I think your show is great, and I particularly like the Jonathan Haidt um, session and the, the discussion about it since then. I do not think he's presenting a false equivalency at all, um, and I think that his point that we should not demonize people we disagree with and hold other people to the same standard is, is definitely a step forward. Thanks again. Take care. Hi, this is Kevin Stanley out of Allentown, PA. I'm calling in to discuss the issues brought up by the Citizens United episode and the last clip with Bill Moyers talking about moral arguments and how Republicans use the Protestant work ethic as a basis for their ambivalence towards poor people who can't afford health insurance or need welfare or supplemental assistance to feed their kids, health care bills, houses underwater, you get the idea. And that somehow they're lazy and you get what you deserved, uh, karma as it were. And it gave me pause to hear that because there definitely is a way to discuss these issues and still have a moral basis for the argument. And in fact, use this fairness argument to get your point across to people that you work with. Take income inequality. When your parents or family members or co-workers start spouting about how job creators deserve an insane portion of the wealth in this country and poor people don't work so hard so they kind of got what they deserved. You can start asking them very nicely and in a non-sarcastic manner, very important, how hard they work at their eight-hour-a-day job. And I guarantee that, although statistically they may not be the most productive person at work, morality and their own experience will tell that 99 times out of 100, they're going to say, I work very hard and earn their position in life. That would be the moral fairness part of their brain talking. And at this point, you can start also talking again very gently and with respect that waitresses and Walmart employees and gas station attendants and hotel maids also put in a 40-hour work week. In fact, most people working from teachers to doctors, nurses, and mechanics put in at least a 40-hour work week when they're full-time at a job. And that's a tough slog for anyone. So shouldn't a 40-hour work week create a livable wage? And regardless of whether your job is awesome and you cure babies, or if you clean hotel rooms for 40 hours a week, shouldn't you be able to provide for your family and improve your life in some fashion because you put the work in? See, that's the beginnings of a moral argument for a livable wage. <coughs> livable wage. If it's for gay rights, hey, it's super hard to keep any relationship going for any length of time. You're going to fight and hassle each other, and it's not going to be perfect. But if you love someone enough and you want to spend the rest of your days with them, don't you deserve to have every right bequeathed to married couples? And at that point, why not just call it marriage? Okay, these arguments are full of holes, and I don't necessarily believe them in any way. But I can see where debates like these can have a moral basis. You can actually talk to your Republican people you live around, and they're not going to scream at you. And if we can talk to people who appear unreasonable and work around that moral roadblock that makes them seem unreasonable, well, then what we have left is a person who can change their mind. Oh, and fair warning, just like Jay's mathematical theorem, 20% of the people you try this on will not only own many guns, but will not appreciate you poking holes at their morality. The best bet for you then is to crouch down super low and run serpentine. 
Love the show. Jay, uh, talk to you later. Goodbye. Hello, Jay. This is John in Atlanta. I heard Wade's comments at the end of the last podcast, and I'm amazed at how long this white privilege thing is lasting. I've got an idea that I think is a good one about that, but I've not called in until now because week after week I thought it'd be too late. But now I see that it's never too late, so here goes. My idea has been touched on by a couple of your other callers, but maybe not hit as hard as I'm about to. Your discussion about the adjective, or qualifier as you call it, used with the noun privilege is good, but I think the main problem is with the word privilege itself. Privilege is a bad word to use because it biases people the wrong way. Because it's really not about privilege, but about the absence of burden. The absence of burden. Wade from Texas and Dave from Springfield, Massachusetts may resent that we appear to be saying that they were born with silver spoons in their mouths, but of course they weren't. They were born with, in this case, the absence of black burden. It's much easier to notice the presence of something, like privilege, for example, than the absence of something. Wade and Dave know that they worked hard for what they've achieved in their lives, but the point is that a typical black person would have had to work harder for those achievements due to the burdens they face in our society and in our culture. Burdens that Dave and Wade cannot know about because they haven't directly experienced them. That's all I have to say for now. Keep up the good work. Bye. Thanks for listening, everyone, and thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you would like to leave a comment, question, or activist call to action yourself to be played on the show, the number to dial is 206-202-3410. And so first today, uh, to John in Atlanta, who called in and, and uh, left the third voicemail uh, that I played today referring to the absence of burden, genius, brilliant, uh, love it. And my only disappointment is that you didn't call in earlier. You know, I, I, As he mentioned he put it off week after week thinking that the conversation had passed. And I got to say, this is an epidemic among people with really interesting ideas who either call or write into the show and mention, yeah, you know, like I, I didn't think I'd write in because I figured this conversation had passed and you wouldn't be interested in hearing about it. But I got to say that these conversations only end when really interesting, unique ideas stop coming in. So if you have a really interesting, unique idea, I'm going to bring the topic back up just to incorporate what you had to say if it's good enough because that's what it's all about. So, yeah, this is a a great example of exactly that. It's such a great example of just the power of understanding how communication works and the profound impact that our choice of words has on how our message gets across or doesn't get across. And, And, you know, because the idea of telling someone that they have an absence of burden because they're not something is so much less uh, sort of accusatory just in tone than to say that you have privilege because you are something. It's, uh, I mean, it's a really profound difference in kind of the psychology that goes along with receiving a message like that. So brilliant. I'm definitely going to be using that one. Uh, now, secondly, today, I wanted to talk about something that I, I really don't have a strong opinion about, and uh, I'm hoping to strengthen my opinion one way or another. I hope to get some responses uh, that 
help clarify my thinking and uh, other people's thinking in, in the process. And it came up in the second voicemail I played today, ju just as one of the examples of how to talk to conservatives, uh, was about how to talk to conservatives about the living wage. And so, you know, first of all, just as a baseline, I totally understand the concept of a minimum wage in, you know, any capitalist society, people who have more economic power and therefore political power are the types of people who are going to be looking to hire um, because it will be profitable for them to hire. They're the ones with businesses and such. And those who are looking to get hired inherently have less power. And so as society has uh, kind of felt it necessary to help balance the power and uh, limit the amount of exploitation of those workers, we've set a minimum wage that people cannot go below in terms of how much uh, people get paid, uh, above the table at least. So that I totally understand. But when progressives start talking about the concept of a living wage, the tone of the conversation changes a little bit. And uh, this is how I'll describe it. You know, as for some reason in America, only progressives tend to believe this, but I feel like in the rest of the world, all generally sane people believe in the concept of demand side economics. You know, businesses don't do things. They don't create uh, their products. They don't create their services when the demand for them isn't there because that just doesn't make sense. So, and you know, demand side economics, it makes sense. Republicans are off the rails on that whole concept and, and believe in supply side. And so they give lots of, you know, money to rich people and, uh, <laughs> and it's an utter disaster. So, you know, that gets talked about a lot, but I sort of feel like the conversation from the progressive side about a living wage sort of becomes the progressive version of espousing supply-side economics. As the argument was just made in, in the voicemail today, he was saying, if a person works hard enough, then they should make a, a wage that they can live off of. And, you know, to me, that's a really nice idea that just doesn't, I think, play out or make sense in reality because wages aren't sort of defined by how hard you work, they're defined by the literal value of the work you're doing. So there are people who do really hard work who are underpaid, who should be paid more. And there are people, uh, the best example in these days is, of course, like, you know, Wall Street bankers who, you know, they work long hours, but they're sort of just, you know, pushing papers around and then actually doing things that are terrible for society and they get paid way too much. And then there's a whole lot of people in the middle, obviously, you know, so the idea that wages are set purely based on the value of the work is uh, imperfect to say the least, because of course wages are set, you know, in, in, in all different sorts of ways, but I feel like that is how they should be set. And so to argue that they should be set based on how hard a person works, no matter how menial the work, no matter how worthless in the literal sense, a job is there, it needs to be done, but the value of that work really isn't that high. Does a person really need to be paid $30,000 a year or whatever we determine a living wage to be to do that work? I'm just not sure that makes sense. And I've never heard a really good progressive argument that described or defined 
that discussion in a way that made a whole lot of sense to me. So like I said, I don't have really strong feelings about that, but I would love to have a strong feeling about it one way or the other. Uh, so if you have a perspective, call in and I, I will remain very open-minded and see what sort of uh, responses I hear. So that number again, 206-202-3410. And that's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. And of course, thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or one-time donor. That is absolutely how the show survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and by spreading the word of individual clips you particularly like through your social networks. That can all be done through the website. Stay tuned into the show between episodes by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information is always posted in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast coming to you every third day, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com Thought buttons now black and white You took apart a picture that wasn't right Pitch burning on a shining sheet The only maker that you want to meet A dying man in a living room Whose shadow bases the floor